Welcome to the Healthcare Weekly Podcast, where you can learn about the innovative ideas and technologies reshaping the healthcare industry. Join over 150,000 monthly readers and listeners all over the world. Each week, we sit down with some of the most brilliant minds in healthcare to learn what the future holds. The Healthcare Weekly Podcast, healthcare innovation starts here. Welcome to another episode of the Healthcare Weekly Podcast. I am Lujan Narsin, CEO at Digital Store Department and Healthcare Weekly. Today, I'm joined by Tracy Warren. She is the co-founder and CEO at Astarda Medical, a health tech company designed to help hospital staff provide care for preterm infants. Tracy, thanks so much for joining the Healthcare Weekly Podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. So Tracy, can you give us a high-level overview of what Astarda Medical does and how your solution works? Absolutely. So we are a precision nutrition company focused on the first thousand days of life. So for us, that's conception to age two. And we provide a suite of digital tools really focused on feeding and nutrition and the microbiome early in life. And we use data and AI to help inform clinicians and ultimately parents around early life decisions for nutrition. And we're starting initially in the market focused, as you mentioned, in preterm infants who are cared for in the neonatal intensive care unit of hospitals. So you mentioned that um, your platform is focused on this two-year spam or like what we said, a thousand days from conception to age two. So mm-hmm. does That's that correct. mean that does it mean you you provide a solution for pregnant women as well, or is it just at birth and beyond? No, it's actually part of our vision while we're starting in the neonatal intensive care unit. There's a tremendous opportunity through maternal health, so pregnant women up through age two. Not only is that a really important time in that people are very focused on their health and the health of their children and what they are eating or what they are feeding, so it's a great time for driving nutrition-based decision-making, but also because we focus on the microbiome, which during pregnancy and early in life has a very, very rapid period of change. By age three, your microbiome is actually as diverse and stable as an adult. So we believe that by providing information about nutrition early in life in that thousand-day period, we can affect long-term health outcomes by setting that microbiome and that gut and that child in the best possible position for long-term health. Gotcha. Okay, so Tracy, let's focus on premature births because whereas it's fairly common, I think about 450,000 babies in the United States are born too soon, it's still not very common to the fact that to the team that like most people wouldn't know about it unless you know you actually have a baby who is born prematurely. So can you talk a little bit about let's call it market? Uh, Four hundred fifty thousand mm-hmm. babies are born prematurely. Like and when that happens, what really happens? Like walk us through that user journey from when a woman gives birth to a premature baby until hopefully and ideally this baby is taken out of the ICU and can go on and live a healthy life. How does that journey look like? Yeah, absolutely. And I would say I, I was one of those people. I had three healthy term babies. So I learned a great amount about the experience of patients 
and parents and clinicians in preterm birth and in the neonatal intensive care unit through my scientific co-founder, Kay Gregory, who's a newborn ICU nurse and is a researcher. Really, you know, babies are surviving today as early as 22 weeks gestation. So if you can imagine this is just halfway through a pregnancy, these kids can be as little as 500 grams which is just astounding if you've seen them. You can literally hold them in your hand. And we've done a great job with modern technology to be able to survive these babies. And so we can survive them at 22 weeks. The biggest challenge is they're not thriving. So these babies tend to stay in the neonatal intensive care unit on average of 77 days, highly complex. And even with all of that care, 50% experience growth failure. So they failed to keep on their growth curves as they would have had they stayed in utero. And they have neurodevelopmental delays or disability at a rate of about 40%. And throughout their life, they have greater exposure to immune-mediated conditions, allergy, asthma, obesity. So these kids start out very, very tiny and very complex and sort of carry the burden of their prematurity with them. Obviously terrifying for families who were not anticipating this sort of early arrival, but I think some of the greatest health care is delivered in the neonatal intensive care unit as we sort of create viability, which 30 years ago, you know, many of these children would not have survived. With that being said, it is a new patient class for many clinicians, right, this ability to survive these very, very premature babies. And so it creates its own set of complexities when you're trying to deliver care for patients who are resident in the hospital for months at a time. Yeah, so I mean, just as I mentioned before the podcast, I was definitely one of those premature babies. I was a mighty 1.3 kilograms or 2.8 pounds when I was born. So now as you're giving these statistics, I'm like, okay, my my mind is racing uh, both of this problem, but also, of course, the, the solution you guys have put forward. The first thing I want to ask you about, so you said of these, let's say 450,000 preterm infants, you mentioned that 50% experience growth failure. So my question to you is, how much of these 50% of babies who have growth failure, they do so because of like genetic reasons versus quality of care in a hospital? Great question. So You know, genetics does play a role in sort of your stature and size and things like that. But just like with term infants and young children, there are growth curves designed to take that into account. So there are centiles of how you would grow. There is not a scientific ratio, but a significant amount of growth failure is driven by malnutrition. And part of that is, if you can imagine, these kids come out, they're critical. The key thing is to get them to breathe right, get them on a breathing machine, make sure they can maintain temperature and sort of stabilize them. And so back in the minds of clinicians is nutrition and feeding them, right? At the same time, their energy needs are higher than, I've seen many talks by clinicians that it's the same energy consumption as the Tour de France athlete in the race. Like it's thousands and thousands of calories this baby needs because it's growing its brain, it's growing its organs. It is trying to do so much And at the same time, it's essentially being starved or not provided adequate nutrition because it had been hooked up to mom, right? Um, It had sort of this custom sauce that it was getting, and now it's sort of ex utero. And there's a lot of struggle and a lot of fits and starts to feeding these babies. And it's not for lack of trying or great clinical intent. It's just unknown what is best and what are 
the rates of proteins and carbohydrates and volume, right? They're very, very tiny people. You can't just give them tons of calories. That doesn't work. And I think it's interesting you mentioned genetics. Part of the challenge is weight alone is not healthy growth, right? Fat preemies actually exist. If your stature is not high, giving you a bunch of calories is not good for you and actually causes a lot of metabolic and long-term conditions. So there's this Goldilocks of growth that needs to happen where it's appropriate for that baby's size, where they started out in life, and it's a, and it meets the needs for them to develop both physically and mentally appropriately for long-term. And it's, it's complex. It, there's not a playbook for this one. So that's where we think our data and solution can help provide some of that insight and information at a large scale. So can you talk about how hospitals deal with this scenario today? I mean, how big is the staff on an average hospital? Talk about the protocols that are designed and any knowledge gaps that you may have encountered as you are developing and improving your solution over time. Yeah, and I don't know the hard statistics, but NICUs traditionally, as with many ICUs, are heavily staffed from a ratio of provider to patient, right, because these are very intensive. So a nurse in the NICU will have less than a handful of babies that he or she is taking care of because you're taking vitals at least once an hour, you're feeding usually every two hours. It's a very labor-intensive. So NICUs are staffed heavily. And there's a lot of great equipment and technology in there. But from a feeding and nutrition perspective, hospitals, most hospitals, and they all vary by hospital, interestingly enough, have their own feeding protocols. So when to initiate feeds, how much to feed, when to advance, when to do things like fortify for extra calories or add in, you know, protein or lipids to help optimize that growth. Those are usually driven through consensus processes and research, right? There's not... It's not a data-driven analysis, but that is how they set the sort of standard for how the babies are to be cared for. So there are a set of guidelines. But as with anything in healthcare, patients are complex, right? It's a very heterogeneous population, and not every baby can follow a protocol, and many don't. And then you layer on that provider variability. Some people feel very confident in they know what's best, and some feel less so. And that results, again, in a lot of kind of fits and starts to this process. So there are protocols, there are guidelines, and for us, that's sort of the lowest hanging fruit to provide value to our hospital customers. And like I said, it's a great tool as well for coordination among nurses, registered dietitians, neonatologists, you know, NICU directors, the very collaborative environment that we are fortunate to work in. So Tracy, can you talk about exactly what would a nurse in an ICU environment see and how that person would interact with your solution for the hospitals that have implemented your platform? Absolutely. And as I said, we have sort of a suite that touches all of the stakeholders. But to answer your question, that a nurse who is at the bedside where a patient's record is available, our platform sits on top, if you will, of the EMR. We're EMR integrated. And we provide sort of feed-by-feed projections, and we capture what's actually delivered in each feed. So as I said, these kids are in for weeks and often months. 
And so you can imagine there's a tremendous amount of documentation required. So our platform takes that protocol I mentioned. We put it sort of instantiated on top of that EMR and project out those feeds which improves workflow and drives standardization. So they see a screen of at three o'clock, I need to feed, you know, three milliliters of mother's milk to this baby. And here are the clinical observations of the baby. So his belly was distended, you know, he had emesis, right? And so our platform captures all of that, which today is documented in EMRs, but it's in multiple different tabs and very, very difficult to navigate. So we complement EMRs and just improve both workflow, but also liberating that data for then analytics, whether you be the neonatologist preparing for rounds, the RD planning for that baby's sort of nutritional journey, or the NICU director who wants to know how his or her operations are going as far as milestones, outcomes, et cetera. Yeah, so if I hear you correctly, your platform sits on top of an EMR, and instead of having this the data across the patient and all these different disparate sources, you're kind of abstracting it and bringing it into your platform so everything is in, in one place. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah, that's interesting because I was talking on a podcast last year with a large hospital administrator for a children's hospital, in New York, and one of the things that kind of struck me that he was talking about is is how one of the biggest challenges that hospitals have is when you kind of like change shift and some information mm-hmm. gets lost, and that leads to complications and, and death. So I, I thought it's very interesting that like because with your solution everything is in one place, and ideally everything is documented, it may reduce the risk when you hand off from one staff member to another, from one shift to another. Is that correct? Absolutely. And that's great insight because we take, as I said, you know, what was said, how frequently it was said, what were sort of the the notes, the kind of nursing documentation. And not only do we capture it on a single screen, but we capture it over time. So today, if you were going into plan for a patient, there's a a lot of hunting and pecking that goes on, if you will, to find the data, right? So it limits an ability of a practitioner to be at top of license because so much of their time is spent on finding the data, which is really, you know, not, I think, what they went to medical school for or to nursing school for, but it's just the way the systems were designed. So we show both a patient across shifts, which to your point, you know, these are really intense in intensive care situations, but also over time. So if you come in, you know, at Neo who hasn't rounded at that particular hospital for a week, you can see that patient's journey seamlessly and really, we believe, make much better informed decisions because you're not looking in the record, writing it down, looking in the record. You know, it's an elegant tool for planning. And again, I think data is a great equalizer in that if it's available, the best possible decisions can be made. So you mentioned that um, as a nurse, I may be able to see some probabilities at the station when I look at a specific preterm infant's record. Can you talk a little bit more about what these probabilities are? Like, Can you give me two or three examples of insights that I, as an IC nurse, could potentially see on the screen? Well, so for the, the actual, the probabilities and predictions would really be at the rounding level. So when the decisions are being made in the morning. So we can do that for the RDs who are planning the nutrition or for the neonatologist. 
the nurses really then have the responsibility to deliver that care. So that's where a lot of the assessment of the belly's bloated, should I feed through, or, you know, the baby hasn't stooled and perhaps is having some issues, what do I do? We capture that data today because centers choose to handle it differently. (laughs) But we are able to then feed that data back to say, look, we modified the protocol 30% of the time, and it was directly related to this observation. So we have sort of this audit and compliance function that helps to look at what decisions are actually being made feed by feed at the bedside. And all that feeds up for those rounding discussions where you say, how did this baby do yesterday? Typically, folks know what they ordered the day before, but they don't actually know what was delivered. Again, too manual of a process for all the babies in the NICU. So we provide that information, and we think that's where you'll get the ability to predict the best feed for a baby and also sort of what are the likely scenarios of his or her journey from a growth perspective, you know, from a longer term outcome perspective. So that's part of the big data set that we envision really transforming this entire space. Gotcha. So the the care team gets the probabilities and the nurses would get something like a checklist or like things I should be doing. Yeah, we call it a feeding plan. It's sort of, it's a pre-populated so that it eases their workflow and says, according to what's been dictated by the protocol, this is what you, you know, this is what's next. But we, again, allow for the observations, right? This child becomes critical, needs to go for surgery, needs transfusion. You have to be able to interrupt that. So we call it a feeding plan, but it's a very dynamic one that still resides with the decision-making with that clinical team member. That makes so so sense. And you've mentioned before that I think you said the average preterm infant may spend up to like 70 or more days in the ICU. Is is that correct? I don't want to make things up. Yeah, no, that's correct. Yeah, under under 34 weekers. So if they're born under 34 weeks, the March of Dimes average length of stay is 77 days, and the cost is about $3,000 a day. And that's exactly what my question uh, was about to be, which is, well, this is a huge cost to hospitals, insurance companies, the parents themselves. Can you talk about how your platform is is helping manage this cost? Like, have you seen that hospitals who leverage your platform may actually have better outcomes, a.k.a. instead of 70 days, people may spend, you know, the kids would spend 40 days in the ICU, therefore both the, making sure the preterm infant gets healthier faster, but also that the cost is lowered over time. So that's exactly right. And there are several studies around this that that length of stay, so that sort of $3,000 a day can be reduced by up to 28%. So you're talking almost two weeks in some cases, in many cases. And probably as importantly, there are factors around the nutrition that's delivered itself. So if you've been in the hospital or been in the NICU or been in any intensive care unit, right? The first kind of thing you're given is nutrition through your veins called parenteral nutrition. It's actually quite expensive. It's up to $1,400 a day for parenteral nutrition. And then you have things like some of our options for nutrition for our preemies are human milk fortifiers or some of these kind of biological things that can help improve calories and kind of bolus the mother's milk as an example. These are very, very expensive. So the other thing we can do is, so we reduce length of stay, but we shorten the amount of time you're on parental nutrition and get 
the baby's using their gut. Like I said, they're fed through a tube. It's called enteral nutrition. So as they move from parenteral to enteral, there's lower cost for that baby. But also when you have an IV, you are at risk of central line associated bloodstream infections, which is a hospital acquired condition. So when we look at what our platforms can do, we get babies to enteral feed faster and off of IVs. We help them grow better. We get them home sooner to their families. And so we think there's value to the patients and their families, but also to the hospitals, particularly as you think, see things like ACO or other value-based care. These kids are in for a very long time. They're usually one of the top three most expensive patients, if you will, in a hospital. And I think they're going to, while there's not millions of them, they're very, very expensive and I think going to remain a focus of payers and providers. Yeah, I mean, even just the saving you you mentioned, like an average of two weeks, that's 42000 per person, right? Absolutely. So Absolutely. Times 450000 it's what, like $1.8 billion, or I don't even yeah. know, $1.8 or $18 billion. It's, it's a significant amount of change, right? <laughs> it's, not, uh, it's not trivial, yeah. that's for sure. That's right. So I don't know if you know the answer to this, but I was just curious, like what percentage of preterm infants are released from hospital and then they have to come back, like they would have to be readmitted. And whether that's something you, you track in terms of how your platform performs versus the benchmark. So it's a great question. And we looked at this. I'm sort of a finance person, so I always start with the numbers. The tricky part, of, so I don't know the answer is the short answer, but I, I want to explain that a bit. A lot of babies are born because they are at level three and level four NICUs. They're usually born you know, further away from home. And so when they're discharged and readmitted, it's usually to a local center, right? So the challenge is it's not like a lot of patients that are seeing their local hospital are discharged and when they go to the ER, they're back at their same hospital. So it's tougher to track readmissions for an institution, which is really where we gather our data is the birthing and NICU hospital. So it's tough to know, but a fair amount get readmitted for feeding issues, for failure to grow and thrive. These are very complicated kids to take home, if you can imagine, but also for a variety of other, you know, they're, again, higher rates of infection and things like that. But I don't have the statistics, and they're not easy to track given this sort of network effect of discharge to home, which may be two or 300 miles away. So I guess data, it's, it's murky because if you're even going from one hospital to the other, you may not be able to extract the data and it may not be considered a readmission. And as such, it's not Correct. easy to say, okay. Correct. Yeah. yeah, and we have that. So, and, you know, my co-founders up at Boston at the Brigham and Women's, if a baby is discharged from the NICU at Brigham and Women's, which is a phenomenal NICU, once they've gone home, they usually go to Boston Children's, which is, you know, so it's, it's just how, you know, it's, our system has a little bit of this, you can get lost in the, in the journey, if you will, from a data perspective. Yeah, I mean, it's something anybody who works in the healthcare system has heard of the term interoperability and how crappy it continues <laughs> to be up to today <laughs> <laughs> really making sense of it. Absolutely. So, uh, do you happen to know, and again, just my pure curiosity, mm-hmm. the total cost of care for preterm infants, both in a hospital setting and after that? So there's a statistic from March of Dimes that estimates that the total cost and impact of preterm infants is $26.1 billion a year. And those are societal costs, so preemies who 
you know, job loss or inability to take jobs. So it's a big number. It's 26.1 billion is sort of the annual cost of prematurity. And we've been very steady as a country with having preterm infant rates. So we're at about 10%. We've been at about 10%. It's not something we're necessarily getting better at. So I think the idea of focusing on how to get these kids on a healthier track could have substantial long-term impact on health. And, you know, the tools are coming and are available to help make a difference now. And so we hope to take a chunk out of that big B. Yeah, and as you're talking about this, I keep thinking about insurance companies since, you know, a lot of our clients are insurance companies. And I think of the fact that, like, how insurance companies operate, it's always, like, reactive, right? If something happens, then you got to deal with it and you got to pay for it. So I think there's a lot to be said here about how this huge cost, of course, what you're doing right now is optimizing cost and quality by providing better insights to nurses and care units therefore reducing the cost. But reality is that the bigger cost that could be saved is if insurance companies invest proactively at the moment when they know that, hey, a woman is pregnant and putting together a plan or even giving these women access to tools that can help them during the pregnancy. Because that's the bigger cost. Like if I can change your behavior when you are pregnant, I will reduce the likelihood of you having a preterm infant, therefore uh, you're reducing the cost significantly if it's proactive as oh, reactive. Absolutely. absolutely. And we're seeing a lot of maternal and infant health programs. Those aren't necessarily plans. They're sort of discovering what the plan might be. But I do think there's a fair amount of attention coming to this space. One, because our maternal mortality rate is absolutely abysmal in this country, and a lot of women still die in childbirth, which is almost unfathomable in some ways. But it is. I mean, these early in life, starting with conception, right, because now there's two people or more to be thinking about, that window is payers can get a handle on it and set the right tools in place, the right behaviors in place early in life. That can make a huge difference if you think about, you know, anything. And nutrition is a huge, what you feed your children has a huge amount to do with how they feel, how they grow, how they under or overgrow. And so I think if payers start to really focus on this window and create evidence-based plans, you could see a tremendous change instead of the rates of kids being obese and having food allergies. And IBD is now 18% for kids under 10. That's insane, right? It's, Sorry, you know, what does that mean? Are, IBD is irritable bowel disease. Okay. So it's a gastric condition that typically was adults, right? People with poor diet and people who have sort of an inflammatory responses. We're seeing it more and more in children. And so diet is really having an effect on the health of kids. And a lot of that is learned early in life. So I think payers, if they get smart, can start to think about both social determinants of health, right? Not everybody has access to organic foods and all these other great things that might help with nutrition, but education and training and understanding that mother's health is baby's health, right? Mother's recovery 
is family health. All of that plays into an area that I think is ripe for opportunity for data, connection, recommendations, etc. And so um, my hope is there's great progress in that in the next five to 10 years. Yeah, I mean, as someone who both invests in healthcare companies and who, you know, as a company, we build software internally. My mind is just going off the charts here. I'm like, oh my God, this would be an amazing digital health application that should be built, which is manage maternal health, work with payers so that people in the network actually have access to this tool. It would be phenomenal. And the cost reduction, improvement in quality of life after birth is just great. <laughs> it really is. Yeah. So my mind is just thinking of like, how do I build this? It's, it's a great idea. <laughs> but uh, so it's, okay. So holistically, what we've been talking about today is a problem that exists along a continuum. It starts with mm-hmm. conception, uh, maternal care. And then you go down this path of like, okay, if the child is preterm, then a certain medical comes in to help react and deal with the problem at an IC level. And hopefully that's done. And then you have post-birth care, which happens in the home. So I want to ask you, you know, where do you see your company moving from where it is today, progressing? Because you're kind of like you're in the middle. Like there's a three-step mm-hmm. problem here and you're solving for the yep. middle. Like do you want to solve mm-hmm. for the one that comes next, the one that comes before? Like how do you see the vision of your company as the CEO of Asarda Medical? in the next decade. Yeah, well, and you're a data guy, so you'll get this, right? We started, you know, we looked at the continuum and my co-founder, Tammy, and I have been in women and infant health for the last eight years as investors before starting this company. But we said, if you're going to do data and you're going to use it in big data, moving into sort of AI and personalized nutrition, you start where you've got the biggest amount of data and that's in the clinic, right? So that's why we started in the NICU. Highest data fidelity, tremendous data capture, everything is known. And so if you're going to move into being predicting outcomes and prescribing care, you need heavy quality data. So that's why we started here. But but you're exactly right. We kind of started in the middle. We've got two really big barbells of healthy term infants in their first two years of life or preterm infants as they're discharged home and moms, right, pregnant moms. And so we are planning to expand initially into that early year of life. So we're looking at term infant nutrition, and we're doing that really through looking at large microbiome studies. We, as a company, have built the largest preterm infant microbiome data set with the help of some of our academic partners. And we're now moving that data set into term infants to look at the development and maturity of the gut over the first year of life and how nutrition impacts that. So we're moving into the babies. However, the application in prenatal health is real and it's a hybrid between OBs and mothers, right? So it's going to be a bit of that part of the interest there is you're going to be part in the clinic at the visit and, you know, some of the care follow-up, but you're going to be highly reliant on parents, just like you are in the term infant, to provide that data. And so they're very different business models than selling to an institution where, you know, data collection is mandatory. So we're moving into the baby side next. We certainly have a vision to move into the prenatal side to capture that full thousand days. But the business model changes pretty substantially when you get into self-reported data, right? The good news is parents tend to track a lot about, you know, what's fed to their child. Do they have a stool? You know, 
did you pump as a mom? Are you delivering, you know, milk or formula? You're introducing food. A lot of that gets tracked by parents, so we think we can leverage that data. But it is patient-reported as opposed to in the NICU with trained clinicians. So we had a rationale for starting small, but we definitely see a much broader opportunity on either end of the spectrum. Yeah, and of course, it's, I mean, you do the right thing. You should always start small, prove the model, get right. money from current clients, and then figure out where to invest next. For any healthcare entrepreneurs who listen to this podcast, I cannot emphasize enough how important it is to do it in this uh, sequence of events. You know, prove the model, do well, expand uh, next. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. I think you've done perfectly well there. The second thing I, um, I was kind of thinking now is, okay, you have all of these different scenarios. And mm-hmm. for 30 years, I mean, you made a very compelling argument, but like, okay, that's associated with giving birth. They're pretty bad. You know, we have a steady mm-hmm. amount of preterm babies. So like in, in many ways, not a lot is changing, you know, kind of from a population health management point of view. So, you know, as you build this company and you're looking towards the future, I want to ask you, like, what do you think are and it is a biased question. I'll be the first one to admit, you know, because I am biased towards technology. So I'm, but I'm still going to ask the question. What do you think are the most important technologies that could reimagine this delivery of healthcare for babies, you know, before, during birth and after both ICU and after discharge? Yeah, it's a great question. I think so. there's a couple of pieces and I would say there are, I'm very excited that there are some great companies out there that have started to attack some of these pieces. But one is prenatal care and optimizing prenatal care. And you have to remember, right, there's a spectrum. So part of our preterm birth rate is actually driven by One, we can survive kids earlier, right? So we expanded the pool by being very clever with technology. But the other is maternal health. So mothers today are much less healthy than they were 50 years ago, and that's driving a lot of the preterm birth rate. So prenatal care to me is a very important area. And technology, that's connecting mom, helping her be accountable, giving her information that she can be actionable. Or, you know, I think in an ideal world, if you know, if costs were not an issue or I were queen for a day, you would get customized meals and food delivered to you to optimize your health for yourself. And I think that's true, I mean, ideally throughout life, but certainly in this window of setting the stage for early, healthy, appropriate, healthy deliveries and maternal recovery from childbirth and that early period. So all of that feeds into prenatal care. So technologies, connected technologies, wearables, as long as they're practical, right? And then I think a lot of, and I think COVID may have flushed some of this out, being more confident in some of these digital platforms to deliver care so you can have it on your schedule, right? I think part of what happens with prenatal care is people are working, they can't get to the right amount, and technology solves that problem because you can get to people, you know, online when you want. So I think prenatal's got, you know, it's some wearables, you've got some connectivity plays, and certainly the sort of on-demand care models where you may not need an OB. Maybe, you know, maybe it's somebody more in a nutritionist role or someone else who can help you with a particular condition you have. So all of that is technology could literally revolutionize 
And then warning signs, right? So digital biomarkers of risk. I would love to see someone get big data sets around what causes some women to have such poor outcomes. Unfortunately, we're finding that a lot of the maternal health outcomes have an element of inherent bias. And certainly, Black women have much higher rates of maternal mortality than white, non-Hispanic. And so some of that is cultural stuff. And to me, I said earlier, data is a great equalizer. Having a platform that looks at risk factors and make sure that the checklist of care that was delivered to patient A is delivered to patient B, that's technology. So I think this whole area could get liberated to have much better maternal health outcomes. And certainly that plays into a healthy birth. Yeah, I think you're absolutely correct. One point of just small clarification, you know, you did mention that, you know, African-American and Hispanic women have a different, uh, worse record in here. It may not necessarily be culture, right? It could be just economic, you know, the fact that by and large, the white population versus the black, they don't have the same income that is both disposable and available to them to take care of their children based on both, let's say, structural issues within our society and really access to information, knowledge, technology. So it would be interesting to see how technology, as it grows, could equalize those inherent inequalities that exist in our society. And that is something, you know, I'm one of uh, more and more AI enthusiasts in this country who continue to talk about how the biggest advantage associated with proliferation of artificial intelligence is the fact that costs will go down across the board, right? So you have these unintended impacts of like, if I can automate and provide amazing insights and actions to the manufacturing sector, then the cost of production and the cost of basic goods goes down. If artificial intelligence can impact different industries in a powerful way, it can produce more revenue that could ultimately help a lot of people in need. So when you're saying, you know, like, hey, uh, ideally I would have like a meal kit delivered to pregnant women each day in order for them to take care of themselves and give birth to healthier babies, I think like, yeah, that's possible, you know. 10, 20 years from now, as we will continue to leverage different technologies and and costs will ultimately go down for basic services. That's more and more of a possibility. And I do hope that we we get to that point. So last question for today, where do you see your company, you know, like 10 years from now? Yeah, well, I can't wait. uh, (laughs) So we actually intend to own the entire space of personalized nutrition and precision nutrition for moms and babies early in life. And so our hope is we are a household name, right? And we are embedded with parents and families and a brand that they trust and a brand that clinicians trust to deliver high quality data that makes life better. So we'd love to see our NICU graduates, you know, in five and 10 years and have those great use cases because that's really what gets us up every day to do what we do. So I hope we are a brand that people know and respect and that we've delivered and helped a lot of families have a really healthy early start in life. Tracy, thank you so much for being on the Healthcare Weekly podcast today. And I wish you all the best in the future and hope to see a start of medical grow into a household name. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the Healthcare Weekly Podcast. Don't forget to visit us at healthcareweekly.com. Subscribe to our channel on your favorite podcast app to get a notification every time a new episode is released. 
Do you know of an inspirational health leader who should be on our podcast? Email us at hello at healthcareweekly.com with details. Healthcare Weekly Podcast. Healthcare innovation starts here.